I wonder sometimes if we really have any idea, any real grasp of the depth of God's love and acceptance for us. And if we don't, if we don't, if we don't really have a handle on just how much He actually loves us and accepts us as we are, what would our lives look like if we did? What would be different? How would we treat others? How would we treat ourselves? Would we live with a greater sense of purpose, a profound sense of destiny? Would we be more intentional in our speech, the things that we say in our conversations, in our prayers? Would we approach God differently? Would we interact with the world differently if we, if we fully understood just how far the God of the universe has gone? The sacrifices that He has made, the, the links that He's taken just to be with you and me. My opinion is that the church today is suffering from a bit of an, an identity crisis. Sort of like the person that is given a complete makeover, but they're only allowed to look in the mirror when the work is done. I think we don't fully recognize sometimes who we are. We don't recognize ourselves. I'm not sure that a lot of Christians fully comprehend the breadth, the, the extent of what God has done in their lives and the, the completeness of that work. Because if we did, I think the church would look different. I think our reputation would be different. What we're known for, what we're characterized by, whether loved or hated, I think what defines us would be undeniable for anyone who's paying attention, which is exactly what we see with the first century church, particularly in its genesis, its earliest stages. Many were drawn to it and yearned for it and embraced it while others were repulsed by it and criticized it and rejected it. But regardless of which perspective the culture around them held, everyone recognized what was common among those early Christians, what defined them and held them together. It, it was their relationship to the Christ their loyalty and faith and devotion to Jesus Christ. And the reason that relationship was so clear to everyone around them was because those early Christians had a firm grasp on just exactly who Jesus was and the reality of what He'd done for them. They, they understood who they were in Him. They understood the completeness of His sacrifice and the implications of that in their own lives. And so it affected everything that they did. It changed everything. The way that they worked. The way they interacted with each other. The way they spent their time and money. The way that they viewed their lives. It was completely in a different context than how the rest of the world around them viewed life. And of course, as we read through the New Testament from Acts on, we see that it didn't take very long for their vision their understanding of exactly who they were to become clouded and for the church, even that early church, to begin struggling with their true identity. Obviously, we see signs of that all throughout Paul's letters to the churches. And so as we 
as we look at one final message this morning in our Running on Empty series, where we've been talking about some of the aspects of life that have the potential to either refresh us and energize us and renew us, or drain us and drag us down and wear us out. We're going to be finishing up Ephesians chapter 4 today, talking about the church. And in this chapter, we find Paul continuing to address identity issues within the church, as he has been all throughout Ephesians 4. He's instructing the church and the members on several different spiritual attributes that should be fundamental characteristics of the church. He's, ex- he's explaining to them that if these spiritual attributes become defining characteristics in your life as individuals and as the church, that your experience as a member of Christ's church, will become fulfilling and strengthening and will bring renewal in your life. He says in verses 15 and 16, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, that's all of us, joined and held together by every joint, that's all of us, with which it is equipped when each part, that's all of us, is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, so he talks about several different characteristics of the church, and then he brings all of these ideas to a culmination at the close of chapter 4, which we're looking at today. He, he summarizes the previous points that we've been studying over the past two or three weeks, and then presents one more idea or characteristic of the Christ follower at the end of the chapter that should be evident in the church. And it's one of those aspects of the gospel that defines and validates for us, as well as the the culture around us, the authenticity of our claims as Christians. So we really cannot overstate the significance of this final characteristic that Paul is discussing in chapter 4 for the church, because it speaks to our very nature as believers. He's talking, of course, about forgiveness. Of course, forgiveness lies at the very core of the gospel. It is a foundational block in the building of the church. And without it, the church cannot stand. Forgiveness speaks to the most basic and fundamental definition of who we are and what we represent. We as Christians, members of the body of Christ, His bride, His church, we are the forgiven. And in this world, we are to represent of course, forgiveness. But if, if we're unable to fully recognize the forgiveness granted us, which again speaks to the very nature of who we are in Christ, how can we ever hope to be His effective representatives to the rest of the world when it comes to forgiveness? Right? I, again, I think this speaks directly to at least a part of the reason that the church and what defines the church in our society today has become so convoluted, so unclear to those who are watching. If we Christians are unable to model true forgiveness in our own homes and in our own churches, how can we ever expect the watching world to bring all of its hurts and fears and shortcomings to us looking for answers? Right? We're, we're supposed to represent Christ to each other first and then to the rest of the world. And because forgiveness is at the very core of who Christ is and what He's done for us, we, we really, we, we truly need to get this right. And so as we wrap up this chapter and this sermon series today, my hope is that we'll be able to grasp, if we don't already, exactly what it means when His Word says that we're forgiven and the ramifications of that truth for the rest of our lives, because that will in turn have great effect on how we and others then experience the church. So let's turn there together, if you would, to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll pick up right where we left off 
last week on verse 25. It says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And so, just as Paul has done all throughout this chapter with each new section, he sort of predicates his statements upon the teaching in the, the verses immediately preceding it. So, he starts out in verse 25 with the word, Therefore, meaning because of what I've written in verses 1 through 24, we can now move on to some instruction that uh, not only closes out the chapter, but in many ways is the culmination of the entire chapter. And so, uh, just as Paul gives a nod here to his teaching in the first three quarters of the chapter before offering this final bit of instruction, uh, we're going to take a quick look at our outline from the last two messages in this sermon so you can see how it all fits together. Okay, so point one was uh, the church should be characterized by unity, right? And then we had two subheadings we talked about, unity in the spirit and then unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. All of that was from verses 1 through 16. And then point two was the church should be characterized by new life. And that also had two subheadings. Experiencing new life in Christ is a choice. And experiencing new life in Christ is a process. And that teaching all came out of verses 17 through 24. And so just keep all of that in mind this morning as we now move through the remaining eight verses of the chapter. And we'll see how it's all connected. Okay, how all of these points are tied together and how they build up to and are prerequisites for point number three this morning. So starting back at verse 25, Paul begins to restate his earlier points. And then he turns to the subject eventually of forgiveness. Verse 25 again. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. He says we're all members one of another. He's reiterating the unity that characterizes, or at least should characterize, the church that he talked about earlier. We're all members one of another. We're all part of the same body. Back in verses 4 through 6, he said, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Unity, okay? Paul makes that statement just after calling us to unity in the spirit as the church, and just before his call for unity in the faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So he reminds the church here in verse 25 about the need for unity, and then he continues. Let's read verses 26 through 31. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. This is the new life that Paul was talking about back in verses 17 through 24. If you were here last week, you might remember uh, in verses 22 through 24, Paul told the church members to put off your old self. He said, it belongs to your former manner of life. It is corrupt through deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Okay, so just as in the first two sections of chapter 4, Paul is also here talking about the need for unity in the church and new life in the church. 
Keep in mind as well, he's not only addressing individual members of the church here, he's addressing them in the context of the church as a whole. This is an important point. In other words, Paul is uh, not giving a list of do's and don'ts here so that individuals can become better people for their own personal enrichment. That's a, certainly a side benefit of experiencing unity and new life as a Christian, without a doubt. We, we do benefit, obviously, personally. But that is not the primary thrust of Paul's teaching here. Remember, he's talking to the church about the church. And I don't mean a, a building or an organization. He's talking to them about them together as the church. And so the primary point to Paul's teaching is that when our lives as members of the church are characterized by unity and by new life, then the entire body, all of us together, he keeps using all of these descriptions of the whole family, the whole community, the whole church. We are all being built up together. All of this teaching is in the context of the church as a whole. Verse 16, Paul says, The whole body joined together and held by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, like it or not, we're in this deal together. We just are. It's a fact. And the only way, the only way that we will ever fully experience all of the blessing and power and effectiveness and beauty and wonder and adventure that God has planned for each of us as individuals is by living out our lives together with each other as the church. This just isn't a survival of the fittest or or last man standing deal. When it comes to living out the gospel, it is in every way a group effort. It is a family affair where we're all being built up as we live in unity uh, and, and new life in Christ. And I think it's utterly fascinating, by the way, that the man writing these words, the one teaching them that individualism isn't going to cut it in God's kingdom, that it's all about the family of God building up and strengthening each other, the same person that's writing this is at that very moment that he's recording this letter, sitting alone, rotting in a jail cell in Rome. If there was ever anyone qualified to make the claims that Paul is making here, it is Paul. Because he intimately knew the difference between being in close fellowship with others and being altogether alone, abandoned, in fact, at times. And so I can't help but believe that as Paul sat there in his prison cell writing these words with deep emotion, there must have been a bitter sting as he had experienced so much rejection and isolation in his life, and yet at the same time an overriding sense of hope and joy, having felt firsthand the bonds of unity and new life and forgiveness in his own life as a part of the church in such profound ways. And so Paul probably, through many tears, and yet at the same time full of hope and joy, he thoroughly and succinctly makes his case here in the first 31 verses of this chapter about unity and new life. And then as if to tie it all together into one final statement, he writes in verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, Paul's final point he makes in this chapter, and it's the final point in our sermon, is that the church should be characterized by forgiveness. If you go back and read through the chapter, and particularly these last eight verses, with this final 
statement about forgiveness in mind. You can see how Paul is building toward this simple and what almost seems to be understated instruction. In verse 26, he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. This is actually a quote from Psalm 4. And Paul would often quote from the Old Testament, just as Jesus did when instructing his disciples. And that, that phrase here, be angry and do not sin, was a Hebrew idiom. It was a, a traditional saying in the Hebrew culture that they used to convey this idea that there is a form of anger that is righteous. And when exercising self-control, that can be expressed without sinning. John Stott, he's one of my favorite scholars, he wrote, There is such a thing as Christian anger, and too few Christians either feel or express it. Indeed, when we fail to do so, we deny God, damage ourselves, and encourage the spread of evil. This agrees with Paul's statement uh, here in chapter 4. There's a time and place for righteous anger to be expressed, but we shouldn't allow that anger to remain and fester unresolved because that leads to bitterness and eventually unforgiveness. Okay, Verse 29, he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. The word corrupting in the ancient Greek is the word sapros. It was used to describe in that day rotting fruit or putrid fish. And Paul contrasts that here with the phrase give grace, which in the Greek means to speak in a way that benefits or builds up other people. So even in our talk, he says, even in the things we say in our speech, we should be saying things that build each other up rather than tear each other down. And then verse 31, Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So he says, put away all of these activities amongst yourselves. And the word anger here, by the way, is slightly different uh, in the original Greek than the word anger in verse 26, and yet they're closely related. The real difference is the context. Paul goes from talking about righteous anger that can bring about positive change, can actually be a, a source of building one another up, to unrighteous, uncontrolled anger that tears each other down. He also uses the word slander, which is in the Greek the word blasphemia. Okay? That's where we get our English uh, word blasphemy from. It refers to anything that we say that is intended to injure another person's good name or the reputation. It also means to switch right from wrong when talking about another person, like saying the opposite about someone from what is actually true. That's how we blaspheme someone. Likewise, he mentions malice, which is the Greek word kakia, which is wishing and sometimes even plotting evil against other people. So these are all statements by Paul about conflict between members of the church. And then he very appropriately concludes with this final instruction about forgiveness in verse 32. Can you see it begin to come together? It all fits together. And then with all of the conjunctive adverbs that Paul uses between each section, the words like now and therefore, he's connecting these three themes in the chapter together in such a way as to say the church must be characterized by unity, new life, and forgiveness. But you cannot experience any of these without all three, right? If there's no unity, there won't be forgiveness. If there's no forgiveness, there won't be unity. If there's no new life in Christ, uh, you won't be unified or able to forgive and on and on. You get the picture, right? Paul says there must be unity. There must be new life in Christ. There absolutely must be forgiveness for all of this to work. And so we're going to spend the last few minutes here 
taking a bit of a closer look at this final characteristic of the follower of Christ that should be evident in the church. And there are uh, certainly many different perspectives on this subject of forgiveness. Uh, many of them are correct. Today we don't have time to cover all those, so we're going to hone in on two this morning, two aspects of forgiveness that Paul alludes to in this final verse of chapter 4. Um, and the first, which seems painfully obvious when you hear it, and yet... <clears throat> Unfortunately, I think it's even more painfully absent uh, from much of the Christian community today is that we must be forgiving. Okay? We must be forgiving. Again, the first part of verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And I'll just tell you that nothing will wreck a church and the lives of those who are a part of it faster than an unwillingness to forgive each other. Nothing will wreck a marriage faster than an unwillingness to forgive each other. Nothing will wreck a family faster than an unwillingness within that family to forgive each other. And nothing will steal away your joy in this life and make you angry and bitter and selfish and short-sighted faster than an unwillingness to forgive. The greatest and most common mistake that people who refuse to forgive someone else make is thinking that by withholding forgiveness, they're somehow sticking it to that other person. That somehow they're hurting that other person when in reality all that they're actually doing is destroying their own life. Proverbs 25, 21 and 22 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. I used to love that verse as a kid, because I used to think, yeah, man, I want to heap some burning coals on somebody's head. Unfortunately, as much as we might wish it, this is in reality, it's not referring to a righteous way that you can hurt somebody. Right? <laughs> The reference heaping burning coals, that was a bad day in Bible college, I'll just tell you right there when I learned that one. The reference to heaping burning coals on his head is actually a metaphor for bringing that person who has wronged you to repentance for their wrongdoing by your kindness, even though that person who wronged you may not deserve it, okay? So when you refuse to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as Paul says in verse 32, the person that is being hurt the most is you. You're actually not affecting the other person in any way that will likely bring any meaningful change in their life. On the contrary, if you want someone who has wronged you to change and to feel a sense of conviction about their sin or offense, which can often be and often is the impetus, uh, the motivation that leads a person toward repentance, the most effective thing that you can do to repay uh, evil is with good. In Romans 12, 17 through 21, Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, and then he quotes Proverbs 25 here, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Listen to what Peter says. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. First Peter 3.9. Okay, if we want the other person 
who has wronged us to change. And if we want to receive personal blessing in the process, then we have to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And once we forgive, this is a big deal. Once we forgive, that means we're done with it. Finished. We don't, we don't trudge it back up and throw it in that person's face every time we're feeling insecure. Forgiveness is a completed work. Once it's done, it's done. Otherwise, it's not true forgiveness. Psalm 103, 10 through 12 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Thank God for that. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. How far exactly is the east from the west? Right? Thank God that when He forgives us, He removes our offense, our sin, our transgressions completely. Micah 7, 18 and 19 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Verse 19 here is a direct reference to Pharaoh and his army being cast in and all his chariots into the Red Sea. Once that happened, they were gone forever. That's what God compares our sins to. That's how he describes his forgiveness toward us. And that is how we are to forgive others. We take those sins, those wrongs, the hurts, the misunderstandings, the bad memories of the past that keep coming up in arguments and the disagreements and those times of stress, and we cast them away into the depths of the sea, forever buried, never to return. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, we see God describing to Jeremiah the new covenant and how he will reconcile us to himself compared to the old covenant. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Now it gets good. Now he's talking about the new covenant that we live under today. He says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Forgotten. Not forgotten as, I, as in I, I can't remember what happened, right? But forgotten as in completely removed. No longer existent. No longer stands in the way of reconciliation, of moving forward with God, forward in life, forward in my relationships. It's not that the memory disappears, okay? Forgotten here means that we no longer hold our offenses against one another. They're completely removed from the picture. That's true forgiveness. It is not paying back the person who, who has offended us what they may deserve. True forgiveness is taking that offense and throwing it away. Gone. That's what the Bible says. It's wiping the slate clean and starting fresh. I think sometimes we confuse tolerating someone after an offense 
with forgiving them. Those are two very different things. It's much easier to tolerate than it is to forgive. Tolerating means modifying our behavior towards someone. Forgiving means modifying our heart towards someone. That's much harder to do. Tolerance allows us to hold on to our hurt and our fear. Uh, The fear that we'll be hurt again, which is really just a mechanism that we use to protect ourselves. True forgiveness is letting go of our hurt and fear and building real relationship back with the one that's hurt us. And that's hard to do because it's it's scary. It's frightening. Right? We don't want to be hurt again. But how many times, how many times does God forgive us over and over and over again and allow us to begin to build trust back again even when we don't deserve it? He requires us. God requires us. And in our text here, Paul instructs us to forgive one another, as did Jesus himself. Uh, Matthew 6, 14 and 15, he said, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And he just let that one sink in a minute. If we refuse to forgive others... Neither will God forgive us. And that isn't, by the way, referring to initial justification. He's talking about the restoration of right relationship with God after we've sinned against Him, just as when someone sins against us. So if you truly want that person to change, and if you want your own life to be blessed, you have to be forgiving. In fact, if you want to be forgiven, you have to forgive. That raises the bar, doesn't it? It raises the bar even higher, and it underscores the gravity of what is at stake when we refuse to forgive. Okay? Forgiveness should be so interwoven with our lives and relationships that it becomes a characteristic of the basic nature of the church. Okay, and then as we read the last part of verse 32 in our main text today, Paul actually points out one other aspect of forgiveness that we'll talk about today. So let's read 32 one more time. He says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. That's what we just talked about. As God in Christ forgave you. We're supposed to forgive others just as we receive forgiveness from God. So not only must we be forgiving, but we must be accepting of forgiveness. There are a lot of Christians who carry the guilt and condemnation of their past around with them. Even though all of that was washed away by the blood of Christ's sacrifice, the moment we submit our lives to Him, put our faith in Him, and yet so many of us just can't seem to let go of the past because of feelings of guilt and shame. And and the thing is, it affects every other relationship in our life. So we carry this weight around that we're not equipped to carry, nor were we ever intended to carry, and our lives become grossly out of balance because we're trying to plot our way through life, carrying around baggage that was supposed to be left at the cross. And often it's because we see ourselves unworthy of forgiveness, and so we try to pay back some kind of penance that was never ours to pay because Jesus took care of all of that for us. That's the good news of the gospel. The whole reality of receiving forgiveness is solely based on what Christ did for us at Calvary. It has absolutely nothing to do with what we've earned or what we deserve. Why? Because we can never earn. We will never deserve what Jesus Christ did for us. That's the truly mind-blowing thing about being a Christian. Before Christ, humanity's plight was hopeless. 
We just simply cannot ever be good enough to earn our forgiveness and salvation. We, we are completely at the mercy of a loving and benevolent God who did the unthinkable so that we might experience the benefit of a perfect life and a sacrificial death without actually ever experiencing either. He gave his son who deserved and earned nothing of what he received, a horrible death on the cross, so that we might receive what we could neither deserve or earn, forgiveness and eternal salvation. And so if you're having trouble with that, if you're having trouble grasping the reality of what Jesus Christ has actually done for you, what he offers you, then you can join the club. Because every time I think about it, I become overwhelmed just trying to get a handle on that reality, particularly when I think about the person that I am and the life that I've lived. And it can be really easy in those moments for me to pick up my condemnation and my shame and my guilt and begin to carry it back around with me. And then I read passages in Scripture like Romans 8, 1 and 2. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Are you kidding me? That's unbelievable. I could just keep going. The Bible is absolutely full of statements about who we are in Christ. Ephesians 1.4, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. That we should be holy and blameless before him. That isn't going to happen, obviously, by our own effort. It happens only by what Jesus Christ did for us. We are holy and blameless in Christ alone. And that's the whole point. Once your life is in Christ, there is no more condemnation. There is no baggage for you to carry anymore. So stop trying to carry it. Stop living in the past. Stop condemning yourself and receive the forgiveness that he's provided for you so that you in turn can forgive others with the same love that he's shown to you. That's the whole point. The church is a giant family of forgiven people. We should act like it. In fact, the world needs us to act like it because the world is broken. It's wonderful, uh, beautiful in so many ways, but it's also full of broken people. Our community right here, our city, this state, our country, there are broken people all around us. You, you can turn on the news for about three seconds and see broken, hurting people all around us. But God is not broken. He is immutable. That means he never changes. He's the same today as he was yesterday. 
as he is tomorrow. And our unchanging God is holiness. He's righteousness. He is truth. He's purity. He's life. He is love. He's forgiveness. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the spirit of that same God inside of you. And so our job as followers of Christ is to offer the holiness and righteousness and truth and purity and life and love and forgiveness that is in us to every single broken person that we meet. That's what the world should see when they look at the church. That's what we should be known for. But we can't be any of those things if we can't first accept the forgiveness that he offers us and then in turn forgive one another. If the church is to be a place of refuge and healing, a place of restoration and strength, a place of renewal, a place that refreshes and invigorates our lives, a place that we're excited about, then we have to embrace unity among us. We have to embrace the new life in Christ that he offers us and the forgiveness that defines us. This is what the world needs to see and experience when they encounter the church. And notice, by the way, that none of it comes by way of our own effort. All of this that we've talked about comes only by our submission to the Spirit of God within us where we lay down our lives, our pride, our fear, our guilt, our shame, our condemnation. We lay all of that down and we allow His Spirit to rise up within us and lead us into forgiveness and then into new life and then into unity. When you do that, the church will become a place that fills you. A place that breathes new life into your life.